The cyber landscape is constantly evolving, creating new challenges and opportunities to defend against sophisticated attacks. At Northrop Grumman, we provide a wide range of capabilities to stay ahead of these threats. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com backslash cyber. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Northrop Grumman. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. We spent the first three days of the week covering the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show. On the sidelines of the conference, we met with the Navy's principal cyber advisor, Chris Cleary, who asked that Josh O'Sullivan, the chief technology officer of cybersecurity firm Ardalist, join us for a conversation on the kind of relationship needed between government and industry to improve the Navy's, the Pentagon's, and the nation's cybersecurity. Our coverage at Navy League was sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries and General Electric Marine, while our naval coverage is sponsored by Fincantieri Marinette Marine. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. General Motors Defense sponsors our coverage of technology, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. Here's our conversation with Chris and Josh. Chris and Josh, thanks very much uh, for uh, making uh, time for us. You know, at each one of these conferences, there's a lot of discussion about greater uh, partnership uh, between uh, industry and government, and the conversations become like, oh, we should cooperate in a kumbaya. But I mean, the specifics are really, really short. And Chris, you know, you wanted to join us with Josh in order to be able to discuss this sort of yin and yang element. You know, you're the principal cyber advisor for the United States Navy leadership. What is the kind of relationship that we ultimately need and what has to happen for us to get beyond the platitudes because we still keep talking about cyber as if it's a support function as opposed to a, a frontline war fighting. I mean, in fact, that's where the hot war is actually going on as we, as we speak. W what do we need to do? What is the relationship we need and how do we need to get beyond to where we are in order to have the kind of partnership we need given how rapidly the threat's moving? Yeah, Yavago, thanks for having me. First of all, I mean, you you hit the, the nail on the head. It is a war-fighting community, and it's a war-fighting capability. And we need to transition the thinking away from where we've been for the last 15 years or so around cyber, that it's a cybersecurity problem. It's things we've got to keep the adversaries away from our information. Um, we have to enable uh, our ability to, to, you know, to, to give any information from anywhere to anywhere to anyone in a secure fashion. Yes, that is table stakes. I work very closely with the CIO. That's his vision. I completely 100% support him that that needs to happen. But for us to all be more successful, this community needs to be recognized as a warfighting community, not simply an enabler to everything else that we're doing on the show floor. Um, there's lots of very interesting technologies down on the show floor that deliver lethality. You know, the military is a organization designed to deliver lethality, prevent that lethality from being delivered upon us. We have dependencies, dependencies on information systems that we are trying to protect, whether it's through information technology, traditional IT, uh, critical infrastructure, weapons systems. That is all important and we are moving in the directions to continue to, to assure the survivability of these systems. Break, break. This whole information community, again, is a war-fighting community. It needs to be seen through that lens, not just the way that we protect information and ensure its availability, but that in itself is a weapon. The way that we are going to deliver effects against our adversary is a weapon. Uh, we've traditionally talked about offensive cyber in very hushed tones. Well, we're not going to tell you how we do it, just like we're not going to tell you how many of those weapon systems on the, on the showroom floor actually work. We're not going to show you schematics. But the fact that they exist, the fact that we're going to uh, work with industry 
who again, and, and what I like about industry, and I think this is something the government needs to come to a harsh realization on, particularly in cyber, is with the exception of some cyber capabilities, there is not a single thing that the government produces. Boots, planes, bullets, ships, tanks, software, that is all provided by the commercial uh, world, and we need to build a better relationship with them, particularly around cyber. And the last thing that I'll say is, you know, we talk about innovating. We talk about the speed of innovation. Um, one of the things that I picked up from the CIO, Aaron Weiss, again, I fundamentally agree with this, is that, you know, innovating is not only about what new technology is out there, but it's the ability to bring that technology at speed into your organization. That's innovation. Um, industry is always going to make new stuff. We have to be able to recognize that new stuff and bring it in at speed and scale. And what we can't do is wait for the developers of new technology to present it to me and say, that's great. I don't have a requirement for that. Let me go figure out how to create a requirement for that. Well, if you had a requirement for it, it might have been developed two years ago. So again, it's, it's a cultural piece on our side to understand that industry is not going to slow down. Government needs to speed up. And, and, and so what are some ways that we can do that and some specific recommendations, and, and Josh, I'm going to get to you in order, you know, how you see it from your perspective, because, um, you know, there are all sorts of challenges doing business with the government. But, but talk to us a little bit, Chris, about what are some of the specific changes you think we need to be enacting, not just as a Navy, but also as a Defense Department, in order to get to the outcomes that we need. There were a few initiatives that were being suggested a couple of years ago. Uh, Miss Ellen Lord was this idea of how are we going to acquire software faster, right? It can't go through the traditional acquisition cycle. Those things have to be continued to be championed and hopefully not through, you know, the winds of change through administrations, you know, new ideas come up, new ways of doing things happen. What one administration said, ah, we, that was great, the new administration comes in, so we're going to change things. The good thing about technology is it's really not administration focused left, right. I mean, it's all pretty consistent. All the administrations have come in and sort of seen the cyber or the technology problem the same. We just have to stick to it longer. Um, we have taken some good measures to, to build organizations that are designed specifically to do this. You know, the Defense Innovation Unit, Naval X, AFWorks with the Air Force. So they're out there and they're growing. In most instances, when, when I meet new technology and I can't bring them through the front door the way we would like to, I try to hand walk them into the Naval X's, the DIUs, the organizations that were created specifically to address this problem. So that's one way. So again, I would continue to, to shed light and bring more attention to those um, the, the organizations that we've created specifically to do this and then you know continue to champion those organizations as as uh, uh, leaders to help us identify new technology and figure out ways to get that into the environment around a lot of the red tape that we just put in front of ourselves and uh, as, a, as, a, as a guy who came from both organizations you know wore the uniform was out in industry and now back in the government when you're back in the government you sort of have self-reflection of oh okay I see how challenged we were to work with Right? right, And then it, there should be something said for bringing more people from industry back into the government to help fix it from the inside and make it a little more conducive with working with those on the outside. So again. Um, so Josh, you know, you just heard uh, Chris, you know, you've been doing business with the government uh, for a while. What do you think the keys are to make sure that this relationship, uh, the two-way street, I mean, I know there are some people who look at that as a, as a net negative, the revolving door is a negative thing. I mean, everybody who knows me knows I think it's a very positive thing because folks on both, in both ecosystems sort of go like, ah, this is the reason why we're being obstinate. From your standpoint, what does the government need to be doing? Because, you know, you and I have talked frequently about the threat and the nature and how fast it's moving. We, we all have. What, what do you think some of the keys are in order to build a more productive future that gets beyond platitudes? Right. Well, I'll go first. Thank you for having me. And, and you know, d just to, I think, hammer on the point what Chris is getting at here in terms of 
understanding as change has been occurring, we're, we're really at a turning point. In industry, as, as we're trying to move forward, as we're trying to work with our different partners of understanding, what, what is the level that the government's going to be willing to pay for? Right? What, what we're seeing today is a sliding backwards, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, you know, cybersecurity, you even hear it more shortly as cyber, defense of cyber operations is not, not a term I've heard over the last couple of days. Uh, you know, maybe effects-based, maybe projection of force, but even that, as to Chris's point, is a hushed, hushed tone. And so, you know, what we're seeing is really a shift back to more of a compliance checklist mentality. It's unclear if the government's going to move forward with CMMC. You know, wh why are we allowing for these thoughts uh, and inconsistency and uncertainty around those requirements? And then when we start talking about those requirements and understanding those, those are the minimums, not the maximums, and how we as, in that partnership need to mature together to have a set of capabilities go after the threat, you know, we have a ways to go. Chris, um, you know, Josh uh, makes a great point, and obviously, right, there are there are two views of CMMC. One was, you know, it's very positive, and it's like a home inspection, and we're going to make it, you know, cheap and plentiful. But from your standpoint, Chris, you know, you just heard what Josh uh, had to say. How do we need to do this? Because then it's indemnification issues, right? I mean, we see this across the board when it comes to weapons testing. Cycle times aren't fast because the contractor is like, well, you know, I don't want to get blamed for anything, so I'm going to try to structure it this way, and then the lawyers get more involved than the engineers do. And the challenge there is also on cyber, right? Am I leaving it open? What has to change in order for us to do what we need to do, given that the threat is moving very rapidly? And I want to talk to you a little bit about this ransomware spate yeah. and some of the things that our Chinese friends and Russian friends are doing. but. You know, how do you respond to what Josh just said? So I love that Josh said that, and I'm going to say, uh, to follow up on that, um, I'm an analogies guy. That's kind of the way that I work. And I think what he's hitting at is, you know, if you look at traditional weapon systems or traditional, you know, an Arleigh Burke destroyer is really not that much different than a traditional merchant ship. But an Arleigh Burke is designed to do something very specific. It's designed to be survivable. It's designed to deliver lethality. Yeah, it has an engine. It floats. It, it brings people to see. It has air conditioning and heating on it. But, it's, but there's certain characteristics built into it that make it very, very expensive because it's a weapons platform, because it's, again, it's designed to be engaged by an adversary. I think when we look at the information technology space, it, we use the COTS word. Well, it's, it's commercially, we're gonna buy COTS stuff, we're gonna buy Microsoft, we're gonna buy Cisco. Okay, that's fine. And that is the beginning building blocks of putting any information system together that we're gonna go use. But then as you start transitioning it from a traditional information system to a weapon system, the Joint Strike Fighter is expensive. The Arleigh Burke class destroyer is expensive. The Virginia class submarine is expensive because it's a weapons platform. I think we, once we start seeing information technology through a similar lens, we'll acknowledge that if we really are gonna go after and acquire the things that we need, they're probably gonna be expensive because they're built to certain specifications to be survivable, to be resilient, to in itself be something that we understand an adversary is gonna actively engage. Those things are probably, when you ask for the people who are going to build these technologies, not trivial. Um, I think we're seeing this with Project Overmatch. Project Overmatch is a great idea. It's something that I hugely endorse. It is not at all easy. It is not at all going to be inexpensive to go build those kinds of capabilities to connect any waveform with any data in any platform and make sure that's interoperable. Great end state, huge fan of it, but the recognition that it's not going to be easy and it's going to take time and it's the dependencies on the defense industrial base to go do that, hey, these guys have jobs and families and businesses and are revenue producing companies that have shareholders. Right. And there's certain reasons that they exist as well. And I think there's a recognition of, you know, I used to say that uh, 
if you want to look at the military in a, in a really just very basic sense, that our fundamental job is to deliver lethality against our adversaries. It's a terrible thing that you ask the Department of Defense to go do. When you fire them off and say, go do what it is I've designed you to go do, it's a horrible thing and we hope never have to use it, but we see that there's a reality to the world that we do. Businesses are no different. Businesses are designed to return revenue and profits to their shareholders. They're designed to generate a product and sell it at a profit and make everybody that invested in that company happy. I think the government has to realize that that's what industry is designed to go off and go do. Now, that's not to say that everybody in industry is just looking to, to make a profit. There's good products and good services. You're using CMMC as an example. Um, I'm a fan of CMMC and its contract, what it's designed to go do. But the companies that we do business in, what I like, the more mature companies, sometimes you don't have to force them to do CMMC-like things because they know it's good business. If they're not making a secure product, if they're not doing something, I'm just not going to buy it. Or, well, that's not a good product. It's got vulnerability holes. It's got a lots of you know, things that I need to now go fix. Thank you for your time and entrance. You know, customer X, I'm going to go with customer or you know, product B because they have shown that they're a little more understanding of what I need. They take a little more, they take security a little more seriously. They take resiliency and survivability and the challenges of working with the government as a customer, they're, they're considerate of that. They, they know it's not easy, but they're in for the long haul. So, you know, that's one of the things we're looking for with some of these industry partners. I know CMNC makes it challenging. Um, there's some goodness in CMC. I'm a fan of Katie. I, I've worked with her quite a bit. Uh, it's, pro it's got a, a few rough edges, but I think the intent of what we were trying to do was, was, was uh, earnest, if that's the right word I'm searching right. for. Yeah. Well, I, right, I mean, that was sort of the philosophical difference. Some see this as, you know, you're merely ticket punching and it's not really going to, you know, move the needle the way it does. And for others, it's like, look, we just need to do something uh, that gets, I mean, I, I, I think we need to transition to much harder and faster rules for some of this stuff because ultimately, as uh, Josh, you and I have discussed, right? I mean, too, too, too much of it is left not as securely. Um, what are some specific things that the government can start doing from your standpoint, right? I mean, you're a chief technology officer, so the great part of your, you know, is blue sky thinking and a lot right. of like novel technology. On the other hand, you have a, a, a CEO, and if you're a good CTO, you're actually looking at some of the technological elements of that as well, right? Uh, right. You know, or, or rather the, the financial elements. What are some basic things that need to happen sooner? And then I want to get to the broader question of, of sort of where we are and, and where, where we're going. So it, it would be great to greenfield this, right? And be able to start out with nothing and be able to build from scratch and have no technical debt, no process debt, no nothing. Unfortunately, that's not where we are today. Right? Where we are today is we have a lot of information out there, various uh, parts of it are classified, various understandings and levels of maturity are out there, various systems are fielded. Uh, you know, uh, it's interesting when, when we look at how uh, you know, the Navy builds a fleet. It's not one fleet, it's actually three different fleets, right? It's the one out there afloat and operating today. It's the one that we're trying to build this year and, and modernize and get things on board and get ready for the next year. And then there's the stuff still on the drawing boards. Now, that's no different when it comes to, to cyber warfare and cyber operations. And so the challenge here is from, from, a, from an investment standpoint and building out capabilities is, okay, well, what, what's, what's the MOEs, what's the MOPs, what's, what's the specifications that we should be building against? And right now, it's kind of a little, little bit left up in the air. Right? We kind of talk about cybersecurity, but we talk around it. You know, when we talk about CMMC as a new thing, that's not really new. Right? It, most of it coming from NISA here 171 and from, from DFAR 2012, those have been around for a while. Most of it's been waiting for the government to get CUI straight, which they're now getting straight this year. And 
you know, we in industry kind of like to, you know, hey, you know, that's really hard. Well, that's, you know, it's funny when you compare what's going, just being forced on an industry with, say, just a regular, you know, ATO and authority operate that the government has to go through. It is simply what's referred to as confidential moderate, not integrity, not availability. And when we start talking about weapon systems and war fighting capabilities and actually, you know, what, what are those actual requirements, I think it's really powerful it's starting to come in. And, you know, you brought up CMMC. I, I think CMMC, especially the executive order, we're starting to get past the personalities. It's starting to become more of a, a systemized need and recognition. However, that's not good enough. I, I hate to say it, but it's not. It's a start. It, it is, and it's a great start. And, and the best thing I think has come out of it is the fact that we have these maturity models to talk about. And so now we don't have to have a technologist come and talk about what cybersecurity is. We can now have the business leaders talk about, I need level three. When you talk with a partner, what level are you? Oh, well, we're level one and we're going to be level three, X, Y, and Z. Not, I'm going to have multi-factor authentication or my firewall is going to be configured this way or, or a long list of technology we're all going to start rolling our heads on. Right? Now, in the end, I think there was a really powerful conversation this morning where, where they were starting to tip and cue through this notion of a Pearl Harbor without a Pearl Harbor, through all these kind of sensitive areas, maybe, maybe not. And to, to Chris's point, if, if we can't start having an open and honest conversation, because most of this world is non-classified at this point, most of the threat intelligence is out there, right? If you look at what MITRE's been doing with the attack framework and how we now have a common uh, taxonomy to talk about threats and vulnerabilities and how we build out capabilities, what, the missing piece is what's the government willing to invest in. To the point that Josh uh, was making, Chris, right at the Ultimately, this is about data, and I think that people, even with Overmatch, there's this tendency of thinking, oh, well, it's about the network, and actually, all of this is about data. How do we need to be thinking about data, and what's the data strategy we need? Because folks have been talking about this forever, and we're still not building that data strategy that would be, I think, foundational to improving the security of it, because that's ultimately what it is that we're trying to protect, and I want to get both of your senses on this. Yeah, and I'm not the data expert, so I'm going to go back and say, so Tom Sasala. But, but, you're, you're, but you're a user, well, right, most, and, a, and most, a shaper of it. and Most certainly, right? Um, so Tom Sasala, who's the chief data officer for the Department of the Navy, he is really the one working on the data strategy sort of under the auspices of Aaron Weiss as the CIO. Um, it is about the data. Everybody's come to that conclusion. Uh, but we're going to find out in 10 years it's going to be about something else. Right. Even when you look at the certain security models, you know, right now it's about the data and it's about zero trust. Well, just two years ago, we were talking about comply to connect. And just a couple of years before that, we were talking about, you know, perimeter defense. And then it was, you know, before that, it was firewalls and intrusion detection systems. So, so this environment moves so quickly. Yes. And right now we've come to the conclusion that it's about the data. I acknowledge that I can't secure everything. So we're going to move to the zero trust construct. So hopefully, you know, I can get information from anywhere to anyone in an environment that I don't necessarily trust. Uh, and, and that's the new thing we're working towards. Um, so I want to get back to this one thing that Josh was talking about. It's this continuum of warfare. They mentioned it with the Cyber Pearl Harbor thing. It's not, it's not, and, and I'm not going to be the alarmist, and I'm trying not to talk in platitudes, not, you know, not if, when it, when it happens. We all know that. Well, we're seeing it right now. We are actually competing with our adversaries below the level of armed conflict right now. That's what that is. Uh, but Admiral Trussler said, you know, he was quoting something that General Nakasone said, you know, these were not just indiscriminate random happenstance. These were sort of deliberately planned. Uh, I have every reason to believe in one of these rooms somewhere in some Russian, you know, skiff, this is part of a campaign. And we need to sort of recognize it in that. But the problem with cyber and cyber warfare, and I like using Admiral Trussler as an example. Admiral Trussler has been a submariner his whole life. 
Um, there's lots of technologies that when introduced to Admiral Trussler as a warfighting submariner, he doesn't need to be explained how a submarine works or how to take a submarine to sea or how to use a submarine as a, as a capability. He's just being introduced to one more tool within his quiver. Uh, aviation's the same. I don't have to teach a pilot how to fly a Hornet or do a one or two circle dogfight or land or take off from an aircraft carrier. It's just here's a new capability, your radar's a little better, I got a new weapon that hangs on a pylon. In cyber, we still haven't built that cadre of folks that are, that are war fighters that can come into an information like this, say, oh, I see a new capability, I know how exactly I'm going to integrate that into my war fighting construct. Uh, we've only really been doing this as a war fighting capability for about 10 years. We've been doing espionage and online cyber operations. Yeah, we've been doing those since there were ones and zeros, since there was electricity and ways to try to, you know, whether we were stealing it from the air through SIGINT or we tapping, but whatever. We've been doing that for decades. Submarine warfare has been around for 100 years. Aviation warfare, 100-ish years. Land warfare, since we could walk, right? Centuries we've been doing land warfare. Well, we are just in the beginning of what information warfare, operation, operate, cyber warfare is. And I think we need to embrace that and start really, really training a cadre that understands, you know, this conference is an example of built of lots of engineers. Uh, but an aeronautical engineer is not a fighter pilot and vice versa. We need more fighter pilots in the cyber world. We need more people who really understand this to work with the technologists. And when technologists come from this world and transition back and go make the things that they as former warfighters, and I'm looking at Josh here, used to use, they appreciate it. Oh, I'm going to go back into industry and I'm going to make what I know my brethren still in uniform need. Right. Every community down there does it. It's how Lockheed works, it's how Northrop works, how Boeing works. You, know, you can't go to Lockheed, you can't throw a rock without hitting a pilot right. um, because they build a joint strike fighter. We need to figure out where those centers of excellence for cyber and cyber warfare are going to be so they can go and retain, attract talent, and provide capabilities back to us in a way that we need them. So, so Josh, um, you know, um, having, having been on both sides of the fence on, on this, um, how, when you, when you look at the Navy and those in uniform, what do you, what do they often forget? What are the skill sets that are necessary? Because unfortunately, I mean, and, and, and not to criticize the United States Navy, it's almost always been, hey, the crypto guy, crypto guys are smart, we'll have crypto guys do it, which is why Mike Rogers is a crypto guy who ended up becoming a cyber guy, because it was like, you know, well, you know, Mikey's a smart guy, he can take that over. Uh, will Metz, same thing, right? I mean, just it's go not, throughout the not whole true. It's, it's, it's not not true. I mean, we right, need those right. guys to do that. Right, right. You, you, you do, but you also need to have the other folks, right? I mean, what's the number one, what's one of the reasons we started this program was senior officers confided in us. We know our war fighting specialties. We don't understand this. And oftentimes the community talks over our head and we don't really understand what it is the heck that they're talking about. What does, so how do you better educate people? How, how do you need to do this to get that skill set up? Because it's going to be decades before there is that pure cyber cadre mindset Everybody is going to be a former submariner for a while, you know, at least at leadership levels, who may understand their principal warfare specialty, but actually may be in these billets and not understand cyber as, as well and with the depth, for example, that, that both of you do, having sort of lived it. Well, not, not you either. Right? You're one of those guys, too. I'm for, yeah, I'm also one of those guys. Yeah. <laughs> not in a bad way. Been around the block. You know, I, I, well, you know, I, I think the first part of that answer to that question is a team sport, that, that this isn't about an individual. It's not about an individual community. This is about bringing communities together. So you know, there's been a lot of conversations of partnerships and whatnot. Uh, notoriously, if you can't get the, the right group in the room that can talk about the network, the mission, and the threat, 
then you're going to have a problem. And, and currently, when you look where we are today organized and Navy-wise, is those are different communities with different mindsets and different organizational structures, a lot of dotted relationships, support supporting relationships. We're also going to place with industry where the cyber mission force has been around long enough that you're starting to see a lot of movement into industry. And so there's a real opportunity here where you have those warfighters that want to go build the solution, right? But from an investment standpoint, we have to hire them, put money into them, give them time and resources to do it, to hopefully now deliver something back to the government. And if we can't get clear from, you know, maybe apply that, that cyber maturity model here to resiliency of, hey, here's hygiene and here's cyber defense, and here's a full scope of cyber warfare, then what do I invest in? You know, overmatch could be a great opportunity to have that full dot mil PFP capabilities of cyber warfare built in. That's not what we're seeing. We're seeing yet another set of capabilities to connect a whole lot. Right. Starts to sound it, a lot like net-centric warfare and Forcenet and, and those kind of old names, right? Well, that, that's what I was going to say. I mean, without being uh, critical of Admiral Small and what his team is doing, the senior Navy leaders have sort of reflected like, hey, wait a minute, this seems like we're going much more in the direction of a network as opposed to some of the, the, the basic uh, data uh, uh, elements. Uh, time, time is uh, running short. I want to ask uh, very uh, briefly uh, the, the question of both of you, which is, so where do we find ourselves, right, Chris? I mean, you're talking about looking at this from a, a campaign plan. Um, if you look at the Navy, you and I have talked mm -hmm. about the scale of vulnerabilities, uh, for, for example, and that's something that's concerned me for some time. We're still vulnerable, despite the fact that we've sort of identified that we need to do better. You, you've joined us, I think, on two separate programs, Josh, to discuss that as well. Where, where are we now, given how the perception of the threat and the reality of the threat is changing. You know, th this whole notion of a cyber Pearl Harbor is not new. It keeps happening over and over again, and everybody with each one of these, you know, the OPM hack is going to be the last one. It it's not. Then it's SolarWinds, and then it's that the Hafnium gang with, with uh, you know, look, where do we find ourselves? Are we at a watership shed tipping point? Uh, or is the whole ecosystem actually like, well, you know, I, I can't protect it, and it's, oh, you know, and boy, you know, we do stuff too. I'm, I'm not really as interested about what we're doing. I know for a fact the other guy is doing stuff to us, and we are still vulnerable, and we're not moving as quickly. And there are a whole bunch of different folks who've come on. Josh Laspinoso came on and was talking about how you guys can actually accelerate the SCADA protection systems and actually do it for not a lot of money. Where do we find ourselves? Are we at a tipping point, and are we going to see greater alacrity from the entire ecosystem? And then, Josh, you'll get the last word on and on whether or not you notice whether or not you see the greater alacrity that people may seek. Yeah, and I, I, we are at a watershed moment. And now I'm going to sound very alarmist like everybody else, right? Now I'm going to say what I hate because others have said it, right? Now the difference is we have built a military, uh, and we've, we've known this for, for you know, decades since the United States was founded. We have, the, we have the luxury of two oceans that protected us and allies to our north and to our south, and, and we could protect us from attack. Well, we're now finding that that's, that's no longer true. And the things that we've created over decades to keep the United States safe, ballistic missile defense, 
you know, we're now finding, okay, here's yet another means and methods of warfare, and I do want to call it a means and methods of warfare, that our adversaries are demonstrating that, yeah, I can't sail a ship 7,000 miles and do something on the coast of California, but I can do this, and I can do it relatively inexpensively, and I know it hurts because the U.S. population can, will just be inconvenienced, and that's really all I need to do. Uh, I'm going to go back to Clausewitz, right? Clausewitz, you know, what is war? War is simply getting your adversaries to succumb to your will how you choose to achieve that effect, there's, you know, you go to the war college, you're about dime, right? Well, we're, we're the military, so of course we're focused on the military aspect of the dime paradigm, which is, you know, diplomatic information, military and economic. Well, I see our adversaries getting really, really good at saying, hey, the military, the U.S. is pretty good at that military thing. I'm going to go professionalize in those other three areas. And, and, and shape them and mold them and get them to do what I want by not having necessarily a threat of military action to do it. I'm now going to come over your oceans. I'm going to come to your population directly because I argue that is the U.S. center of gravity is our, our population. Um, and they're getting really, really good at that. So uh, I think that we are at a paradigm shift. We do need to recognize how means and methods of warfare are changing. Um, and all of the cool platforms that we're building are not necessarily the things that are going to prevent conflict in the future. I think we need to show resiliency. We need to show that our population is more protected, which then makes our other abilities to deliver lethality a little more credible. Josh? So first off, I agree with what Chris just laid out there, that we are at that watershed moment. I, I also think we're at a decision point, that we have to make some choices of, of which way we're going to go here. Because we, we have all the opportunity to slide backwards and, and not treat this as important. Uh, you know, I, I think at the FCA conference here uh, a couple months ago down in Norfolk, they were talking through what the budgets are for around cyber. And, and one syscom spends $110 million on certification and accreditation alone. And I think it was Chris that was talking through the cyber resiliency budget as a whole across the entire Navy is less than $100 million. So we're spending more on certification and accreditation in one syscom than we are across the entire Navy from a resiliency standpoint. Now let's take that across the 16 critical U.S. infrastructure sectors, right? And it's funny, I'm you know, walking around the spaces here, and you know, they're talking about wearing masks again and those kind of things, and there's one or two people that are maybe doing it, and we're all kind of joking about, hey, maybe we should be wearing a mask, maybe we shouldn't, you know, what, what are those right hygiene things we should be doing? Imagine if someone's walking around here spraying and conducting those kind of operations against us. That's where we are right now. So there, you know, we can choose to make some investments, and choose to drive some requirements, maybe ignore some of the politics of the different administration changes, because surprisingly, it's been fairly consistent across all the administrations of the need to do this. However, if the government's not going to be investing those resources, then it's impossible from an industry perspective to be able to invest those resources, because we won't get anything in return. So you know, I think in the end of that is, is that integration partnership perspective, but going through that maturity journey together. Um, I, I find it fascinating that we're perfectly happy plussing up another destroyer, and I'm not making the case against another de destroyer, but if you started applying that money towards cyber and realizing that that is the force multiplier at the end of the day, um, I, I, I find that stunning. V very briefly, if you were going to put a number value on this, Chris, how much, like if, if you wanted to say, okay, look, we, we need to address the scale of vulnerabilities and we need to create some form of crash program to do it, how much money are we talking about? Because there is a tendency of us really 
nickel and diming on the hundreds of millions of dollars side of the equation, whereas we're perfectly comfortable building an LCS class, no disrespect to anybody in the United States Navy, but it, that, that class could be decommissioned with, within a short period of time. We've already, we're going to decommission six of those ships, which constitute, what, about $3 billion worth of hardware that we're just like, yeah, you know, yep. we, we, we could learn lessons from, from, from it. From your standpoint, what's the monetary amount that we need to be thinking about uh, if, if somebody is listening either at N8 or in the CNO's office or the new secretary's office? Uh, so one of the things is the PCA I'm supposed to do is the adequacy of our cyberspace activities budget. You know, what are we spending on cyberspace activities and is it adequate to get to the end state? Well, it's hard to really determine adequacy. I, I would say without putting a number on it, you know, it has to be three to five X what we're spending on it right now. And that's just to get us kind of going. Guys, uh, thanks very much. Chris, uh, thank you very much for doing what you do every day. Josh, thank you for being you. Uh, always a pleasure having you guys on and looking forward to continuing uh, the dialogue and, and, and ringing the bell. Yeah, thanks, Fargo. Thanks for having me.